everyone, and welcome to One Great History, a podcast all about the great and sometimes not so great parts of Winnipeg history. I'm one of your hosts, Sabrina. And I'm Alex. And today we're talking about the battle at Market Square and more broadly, Nazis in Winnipeg in the 1930s. Yeah, and I'm excited so, about this one because I feel like not not a ton has been um, like written or, or talked about on this. No, not much. There's like a, there is a documentary. I will say that in like a couple of articles and a book from the seventies. <laughs> so, <laughs> scholarship is a little out there. I mean, that's a lot of Winnipeg history is like, there's a book from the seventies. <laughs> James yeah, no Gray kidding. wrote something once. <laughs> this time it's not James Gray, which is the shocking twist to the episode. Is I didn't use James Gray once. <laughs> But as a sort of warning at the start, we will be talking about anti-Semitism this episode. If you don't want to listen to that, totally fine. We've got other things that are maybe more up your alley. Frida just jumped on something and I got distracted. <laughs> She's lurking and I'm worried she might try and hit my laptop. But oh, no. This is one of those episodes where it's hard to come up with like a fun, like anecdote intro to like how do you feel about nazis is maybe yeah. not really a conversation <laughs> and the answer to that for both of us is no no <laughs> but neither of us are jewish so that would by, be why yeah, by, by definition no but i thought maybe i would ask how much you know about what was going on in canada in the 1930s not a ton really i feel like my my area of history has always been kind of like the twenties and earlier. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I know that the great depression was happening, obviously. Yeah. Um, I know Hitler comes to power in the thirties if we're talking about fascism. Yeah. So that's about it. That's about it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's, I mean, that's the gist of it. Those are the like hits of the decade, essentially, but basically. It's, yeah. <laughs> if you want to call them that. Let's not read those hits. <laughs> no. In 1929, the stock market crashes, and then most of the world is swept up in this sort of financial depression that means that hundreds of thousands of people are laid off of work. It's hard to find jobs. Many people are thrust into poverty unexpectedly. And then compounding the issue specifically in the prairies is that we experience a drought. So suddenly that lucrative grain trade that we had relied on for most of the early 1900s was no longer making us money in the way it had before. Not our wheat. No, not the wheat. Without that, how will we make our money? So like financially, the prairies aren't doing well at all in the 1930s. And then globally, a lot is going on as well. Like going back even 15 years, um, there's the Russian Revolution in 1917, which basically prompts a massive red scare across mm -hmm. most of the Western world, which is essentially a fear that there are secret communists lying in wait in our cities trying to overthrow <laughs> the government that we know and love. So there's that. Winnipeg experiences a strike not long after, which involves like 30,000 workers and six weeks of no work at all. And then the 20s, there's sort of a brief boom and then a crash. But what's going on elsewhere in the world is that 1922, Mussolini comes to power in Italy as the leader of the fascist party. And at the time, fascism is a pretty new ideology. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to, I'm not like a political theory person at all. So we're not going to get too far into it. But if you're not familiar with what fascism actually oh, is. Google it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Alex, I wrote a helpful notes. <laughs> 
Okay, let's hear your helpful notes on what fascism is. I mean, basically, it's like an authoritarian government characterized by ultranationalism and then forcible suppression of the opposition. Mm-hmm. That's basically it. And a lot At of that time, is in like response to the Red Scare as well. Oh, very much so. It seems like they're sort of posing themselves as the only enemy of communism in Russia. Mm-hmm. That is the rhetoric going on. But in 1922, at least, the fascism in Italy isn't quite as anti-Semitic as it would become a little later on. Okay. It starts off a little tamer and then really ramps it up, sadly. (laughs) And then in 1931, there's Sir Oswald Mosley in England who forms the new party. And then he goes to Italy, meets Mussolini, and then goes back to England and forms the British Union of Fascists. And then, incidentally, in Winnipeg, not long after, we get a mostly allied fascist party. Oh, interesting. And then they don't really seem to do anything. Like, I couldn't find many mentions of them. But then, probably most importantly to the episode, is that in 1933, Adolf Hitler comes to power in Germany with his National Socialist Party. Right. All three of these men are relevant because they influence politics in Winnipeg and what parties are going to be formed and how they all interact with each other. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the world really shaping how Winnipeg is going to like react to things. Right. So this is a real like international movement of terribleness. Absolutely. And I think maybe also might not be a bad idea to mention why people get swept up in like fascist and anti-Semitic movements in the first place, because it's yeah, kind of sure. hard to wrap your head around. Yeah. You're not familiar with how this works. So like it's a pretty extreme ideology. And normally it comes up specifically during times of like economic or social hardship. So it's basically a way to like cope with sort of inequality and stressors and poverty in the world. If you don't have an answer, right, you cling to a thing that will bring you comfort no matter how like dramatic it is. Yeah, like the the, like historical like Marxist in me is like, yeah, it's like misplaced like class warfare right i mean essentially right like, basically you're sad about being poor and so you blame yeah. the jews yeah basically and then in some cases where you see like an influx of immigrants that are disrupting the status quo if you are someone who's generally a little higher up on like the social hierarchy you might feel threatened and then try and cling to something that reasserts that yes i am a white man and i am superior right And then also you might have people who are just opportunistic and see a great train to hop onto and exploit people. Mm, Totally. And then the other thing that is probably worth going over is that they lie, which we're going to see a little bit of over the course of this episode. Oh, well, that's one way to uh, find political success. (laughs) Well, they're going to, the thing I noticed in looking at like fascist parties in Winnipeg is that they'll say they're not violent or they're not affiliated with Hitler or they're not doing anything about Germany. And then the moment you actually look at what the party is doing, you're like, well, <laughs> that's not quite true. So all of this stuff going on in Europe in the early 1930s is also sort of starting in Canada as well. Most notably in Quebec, we have the National Unity Party, which is founded by Adrian Arcand. And then there's the Canadian Union of Fascists, which is more inspired by Molesley. And that's in Toronto, but it's founded by a Winnipegger, Charles Crate, and then Joss Ron Taylor in Toronto. Okay. They'll come back in a little later. And then um, also, just as a fun fact, the KKK is also on the rise in the prairies in the 1930s. Uh, yeah, they've got a whole stronghold in like Saskatchewan. Yeah. 
the 1930s are a rough time to be a minority. Yeah. But uh, kind of embarrassingly, Winnipeg hops on the fascism train really early on. Oh, no. Like, we have one before Quebec does. Right. So the first mention I could find of one is in May of 1933, the Winnipeg police raid a home at, on Sargent Avenue under the suspicion of seditious conspiracy. And there they find Arthur Hart Parker, who was the leader of the Winnipeg fascist party. Okay. So like, so, why, why do you think that is? Why do you think Winnipeg buys into fascism so early? I mean, it's a good question in, like, oof. Maybe that Winnipeg has so many like radical ideologies already. That's true. There's a lot of there's a lot of big opinions floating around. Yeah, and also Winnipeg is a city of immigrants, right? And people yeah. are still coming in. So there's a lot of new ideas and opinions coming through that are then disrupting yeah. sort of society as we know it, and then people might react strongly. I guess and- we did also experience like economic recession in the 20s when most pe- most places were experiencing a boom so maybe that had something to do with it I don't probably. know probably I'm sure there were tensions already growing where they hadn't quite started in other places yet yeah but also like Winnipeg as a city is always very politically active yeah especially around this time so it's maybe not surprising that some people hop on a little bit more like radical ideas the winters are places. cold we stay at home and get angry basically so <laughs> We don't know a whole lot about the Winnipeg Fascist Party because they're not around for all that long. Oh, okay. So like the Tribune, one of our local newspapers reports on the raid and they quickly interview Arthur Hart Parker, who basically just gives the usual Jewish people are trying to ruin society nonsense. But then he also won't tell the police or the paper how large his following is. Oh, weird. And then they stop existing. So So probably it was not very large is my guess. Yeah. And in fact, the next time we see Arthur Hart Parker in the news is at a Canadian Nationalist Party meeting. Okay. So the Canadian Nationalist Party is formed on September 27th, 1933, under the leadership of William Whitaker. By this point, Whitaker was in his late 50s. He'd actually fought for Britain in a couple of imperialist campaigns, and he had been too old to fight in World War I. Okay. <laughs> but he was also a former cop, hotel detective, and had worked as a KKK organizer. Ah, oh, jeez. So don't love love the alliance there between cops and the KKK. No. So he had a lot of experience specifically in the military going into this. And when he founds the Nationalist Party, he has a 19-year-old assistant named Jack Cole. Okay. And they often wore uh, these sort of brown shirts. So their party got the nickname the Brown Shirt Party. Right. And they claimed their uniform was typical Canadian dress. (laughs) Okay. And not at actually, all Nazi inspired, I'm sure. I am going to send you a picture of their uniforms. Okay. And I will let you describe what they look like. Um, <laughs> okay. So these are the outfits to be clear that they described as ordinary Canadian dress. And not at all related to Germany. Okay. So they were very clear to specify it wasn't German inspired. Okay. So I would describe what they're wearing as, I don't know if this is the right historical fashion term, but jodhpurs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know yeah. what I mean? They're like, so they're like those pants with like the puffy thighs. Yep. <laughs> and they're wearing kind of like almost knee high boots, like black boots. And then like dress shirts and ties. 
and they oh, you... and they all have the same haircut also, which is like slicked back and parted. Yeah. Would you say they look like stormtroopers in Germany? <laughs> yes. yes, I would. <laughs> um, I would not say that this looks like normal Canadian dress at this point. No, it looks like military dress. Yeah. That's Which very may weird. Have been like deliberate. Like especially like they're all wearing identical clothes. That was a party uniform. Thing. No. But the idea they were trying to give off in Winnipeg was a sort of like fervent patriotism for the cause, for Canada. So they weren't swinging this as being like a German pride thing. It was a Canadian pride thing. And then right. they just seemed to keep stealing things from the Germans. Yeah, that's so, weird to ally yourself with like a foreign movement and then call it patriotic, right? Yeah. They deny this German thing for a really long time. <laughs> so, like, what the pub, what they're doing publicly is they're holding meetings and rallies in front of this big Union Jack flag, and they're talking about how they want to end the Great Depression and fight communism and save Canada. But they're also trying to target soldiers specifically. Okay. To join the movement. Ugh. Now, okay, the other fun thing... Their weirdest demand, as far as I can tell, is that they want to eliminate all provincial governments and then form a giant corporate state. Wait, what? Okay, I explain this. I can't. I don't. Oh. Logistically, it seems impossible. It seems like what they would like to do is remove all provinces and then have one person in charge of everything. I mean, I guess that is like the ultimate end to fascism, but like, bad idea. Can you imagine getting any of the provinces to agree to that? <laughs> I mean, the, like, the storm in Quebec alone. <laughs> right? So it's a bad idea, and that doesn't go anywhere. But um, they also swear up and down they're not affiliated with any other fascist party, and they claim right. they don't want violence. And then William hmm. Whitaker goes to meet the German consulate and the German consul to get support. Jeez. And notably, the German consul at the time was Dr. Heinrich Sielheim. He doesn't give Whitaker his support. Okay. So Weird. he turns Whitaker away. We'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. It comes back up again. But... <laughs> it's, it's weird to claim that you are a fascist party that does not support violence. I feel like you can't spout hatred and say that you don't expect that to turn violent, right? Yeah. So at this point, early in the party line, they're claiming they're not anti-Semitic. They just want a Canadian oh. or Canadians. Oh, okay. So it's a little more veiled. Right. Than it will become. I mean, the trick with all of this is, again, they're lying, right? They're saying we're not anti-Semitic and then using these, like, buzzwords. Right. That people who are anti-Semitic will recognize. Mm-hmm. So not everyone picks up on it right away, necessarily, but they do gain a following in Winnipeg, especially in the North End, where there are a lot of different political ideologies floating around and people of different backgrounds, mm -hmm. different wealth statuses. So they get a number of veterans, a number of Russian and Ukrainian immigrants, and also a number of Mennonites. Oh, no. And the thing here is the Mennonites oppose communism, and that's why they're following the party. Okay. But they also oppose violence. Like Mennonites, especially in the 1930s, yeah. are pacifists. <laughs> so they're not the most committed followers in the world, I would say. Right. And 
almost from the get-go, there were people in Winnipeg who realized the Nationalist Party was a real threat. Mm -hmm. But the issue is the people who were realizing this were either Jewish or communists or both. I that that isn't too surprising to me. I feel like one thing we should say is that like it's really easy for us in 2021 to be like obviously fascists are bad. Yeah. But like but also the it whole was a new ideology yet. Yeah. Yeah. And like fascism as a concept hadn't been around for that long. Yeah. This is like what less than 15 years into it as an ideology in practice. Right. But also like Communists and Jewish people are the people being threatened by this ideology, right? So it's obvious that they're the ones who are going to pick up on it. But then also, they're the ones society might not listen to, Mm. necessarily. The other key point with this is that in the 1930s, there are already communists in the Manitoba government. So communists are real. Well, they're not (laughs) secret because... It's Jacob Penner. He's an alderman in the North End. Oh, okay. He's like very publicly a Communist Party member and also a member of city council. Okay. And uh, he wasn't fighting for a radical overhaul of the system or a Canada for Canadians. What he was fighting for was affordable housing, minimum wage, and unemployment insurance. Horrifying. We must fight against it. Also, Penner was popular. He was reelected numerous times. He was one of the longest-running communist politicians in Canada for a while. Huh. So, like, it's not like we're saying there's no communists in Winnipeg, but they're around, they're in government. People probably know communists. Right. They're not, like, a shady cabal lurking in the distance. They're not, like, planning a government overthrow. They're just around. They're just, like, in city council. Yeah. And then, at some point through Jacob Penner's work and a number of activists' work, they do actually manage to get a police raid on the Nationalist headquarters, which confirms that also maybe they weren't as not violent, non-violent as they claimed. Uh-oh. Because Whitaker and Cole were actively trying to recruit men with military experience, namely stuff like manning guns. Uh-huh. So, a lot of lies pretty early yeah. on. And, like, the thing to note here, too, is that like the anti-Semitism they're going to use is not really new to Winnipeg at this point. Like it's a little more violent than what you'd see before. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an interview with um, William Ross that the Jewish Heritage Center archives has. And the way Ross phrased it as essentially before Whitaker, the anti-Semitism was quiet. Okay. It wasn't like quite in the press or in your face in the same way, but also like, Jewish people couldn't go to Victoria Beach or Grand Beach. They were banned yeah. explicitly from participating in anything going on in those areas. Yeah, we talked Winnipeg- a little bit about that in our Winnipeg Beach episode. Yeah, we did. So, like, there's already some exclusion going on. And even during the Winnipeg general strike in 1919, some people were trying to put forward the idea that a bunch of rich Jewish people were funding the strike. <sighs> that <is> not, not true. <laughs> so... And if anyone had any doubt that the Nationalist Party was anti-Semitic, they quickly threw that out the window when they began uh, publishing their own paper called The Canadian Nationalist. Okay. So the paper is published by um, a Mennonite man, Herman Neufeld, who runs a publishing company in Winnipeg. And I'm going to send you one of their covers. Uh-oh. 
This is from 1937, so it's a little later on when the party had gotten worse. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's like prime fascist time. But essentially, the Canadian nationalist was fascist propaganda. Right. Is the best way to put it. And, like, the header for the paper is a swastika. Okay, so let me see what I see here. Yeah, Yeah, so there are... It's like a big kind of like ray of sunshine with two swastikas and someone in the middle holding a torch. Oh, okay, weird. And then there's an article here called The Symbol of Jew Conquest, which appears to be about like the Star of David, but also Freemasonry, communists, the Treaty of Versailles, the USSR and the okay and the Roosevelt medals yeah so it doesn't make sense but like essentially what they're doing is they're trying to find ways to connect Judaism with like every societal ill they can think of right and then it says at the bottom here international Jewry is the cause of wars depression and world unrest unite against it join the Canadian Nationalist Party yeah so Like, that's basically every, like, ill that's happening in the world right now. Yes. So, (laughs) that's the paper that starts getting published. Oh, you go, yeah. What's funny about this is how similar it is to modern conspiracy theories, that they're like, oh, here's this symbol. This symbol also appears on this thing. Yep. Where, like, the logic isn't quite there, that, like, if I was trying to be a secret Jew or whatever... I wouldn't put the Jewish symbol on my thing. Yeah. I don't know. No, I mean, the idea, like, is that either your enemy is all-powerful or incredibly stupid, and that somehow exists at the same time. Totally, yeah. Which is, like, a weird, I think, mental state to be in. Yeah. (laughs) So, the paper comes out. And not everyone is reading it. It's handed out by newsboys on street corners, but it's not exactly the same distribution level as, like, the Winnipeg Free Press. Mm-hmm. And then people in Winnipeg start pushing back. Oh, in good. a handful of ways. There's sort of, like, general agitation where people start showing up to disrupt Nationalist Party meetings. Hmm. And there's a couple of records of this happening at the province of Manitoba um, archives because they have some oral histories of men who recall like going with their friends to break up meetings as early as 1933. Bill Ross, who I mentioned earlier, would go with his friends as well. And eventually got to the point where Whitaker started hiring cops to come and watch the meetings to stop disruptions from happening. Oh, interesting. And then some of these people also start founding anti-fascist leagues across (laughs) the city. So there's a couple of them. There's the Jewish Anti-Fascist League, the Jewish Youth Anti-Fascist League, a General Anti-Fascist League, a Winnipeg Workers Anti-Fascist Conference comes to the city in 1933. Yeah, so I was going to ask, would you say, like, at this point still that the people who are going to break up meetings are largely, like, Jewish people, or? No, not necessarily. It seems like some of them are also, like, just younger radicals in Winnipeg. Hmm. Probably a few, most of them were parts of, like, the Communist Party at the time, Yeah, I would say. The ones who were a little more inclined to, like, take political action. Right. We should say that being a communist was not super uncommon at this point. No, I would, I at one point told you that Winnipeg was rife with communists, and I don't <laughs> think that's necessarily untrue. <laughs> yeah. And, like, I mean, I, again, there were communists, there were also anarchists in Winnipeg's North End. It was, like, a real political hotbed yeah. at the time. So it's not like a communist is all that unusual. 
in the city. It's pretty typical, especially when you're looking at stuff like disrupting fascist meetings. Huh. So Jacob Penner, who I talked about, the like communist city councilor, actually helps form uh, the Anti-Fascist League. They were all formed roughly between 1934 to 1935. And the fun thing with them is we actually know a little bit more about their operations. So the Nationalist Party normally held their meetings in secret. Their meeting minutes, so far as I can tell, aren't available anywhere. They may have been destroyed or just like mm-hmm. at some point in the desk drawer. I guess probably so no don't... one wants to claim that as their history, right? No, exactly. Or like later on, someone found them and then burned them. Yeah. To like erase that. Yeah. But the Anti-Fascist League does actually keep records. We know when they meet. So the chairman of the Jewish Anti-Fascist League in the early 1930s was a Fred Narver, and they actually rented a storefront at the corner of Pritchard and Main Street. Hmm. They have like a head office for their operations. And then they start bringing in speakers, and they start publishing pamphlets on the dangers of fascism and anti-Semitism. So the one that they note um, in some recollections later is they bring in a Scott Nearing, who is a American radical economist. But he stayed for a week and gave a number of talks. And then we also have the League to Combat Fascism and Anti-Semitism, which was a very rare merger between the Canadian Commonwealth Federation and the Communist Party of Canada. Oh, interesting. So the Commonwealth Federation is sort of like a more socialist version of the NDP would be how Mm -hmm. I would describe it. I guess it's like it's the precursor to the NDP, right? Very much so. Yeah, Yeah. they were a little more radical in the 30s, but Mm -hmm. there's still a pretty big like ideological gap between (laughs) them and the communists and they didn't tend to get along. Okay. So this merger was like actually a big deal. They agreed to sort of team up for this one cause. Mm-hmm. And apparently what inspired this specific merger was after um, Joseph Alter uh, Cherniak interrupted a nationalist meeting to just ask everyone to go home. <laughs> That's excellent. It was pretty good. So um, this group actually tried to push for a boycott of goods from Germany, and then they held rallies and also published anti-fascist newsletters. Hmm. And I don't have many copies of them, the ones um, in holdings at the uh, Jewish Heritage Center are mostly from 1938. So we'll talk about those in a little bit. Okay. But these are pretty steady publications across the 1930s. Hmm. And then some members of the government also sort of take notice. So in 1934, the Trade and Labor Com- uh, Congress vowed to investigate funding for the Nationalist Party to see if any funding is com- coming from anywhere suspicious. And then uh, John Queen begins to rally against fascism in the provincial government. Oh, interesting. Do you want to quickly explain who John Queen is? So John Queen was involved in the Winnipeg general strike. Yeah. And then later became mayor, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. But there's a bit in between where he's a member of the uh, Manitoba government as an MLA for the Independent Labor Party. Hmm. So the Labor Party was a left-leaning labor-supporting group that petered out by 1934 when it was sort of absorbed into the Commonwealth Federation. But essentially in 1934, Queen was arguing uh, at the provincial government that the Nationalist Party was a serious threat to democracy and that they were going to try and overthrow the government at some point. Huh, that is super interesting to me that like people were already realizing that this was going to be problematic. The party had been around for a year. Yeah. But Jeez. also, like, remember that Whitaker very early on is saying we should get rid of the provinces. Right. <laughs> so 
So, yeah. Maybe not too much of a surprise. But the thing is, Queen is actually laughed at by our Attorney General at the time, uh, oh. W.J. Major. Okay. And then Major makes a statement that reads, Canada knows no distinction whether he be Black or White, Nordic or Slav, Jew or Gentile. Okay. Note who's missing from that sentence. Okay, say say again what the... <laughs> whether he be Black or White, uh-huh. Nordic or Slav, Jew or Gentile. Uh... Well, we haven't mentioned indigenous folks there. Yeah. And also, Major might have been making a pretty big distinction that there were actually any sort of group libel laws in Manitoba or Canada. Yeah. So there there weren't. And essentially what that means is actually you could just slander anyone as a group. Oh, interesting. So... Basically, the way libel laws work, just in case someone's not familiar, is if I want to say, Alex Judge should die, you can then (laughs) sue me for that. (laughs) But if I make some claim, like, all podcast hosts should die, there wouldn't have been anything to, like, protect podcast hosts from, like, a group slander. Just individual people could then take action to sue. Right. So I guess nowadays, and this is, if we have any American listeners, this is a difference between Canada and the U.S. is that we have hate speech laws here. Yes. You actually cannot now denigrate a whole group of people. Yeah. And I mean, the key thing, I think then especially, is that the offended party would have to sue. Right. It's not like if I said a mean thing, the government would automatically know. Right. Someone has (laughs) to press charges. (laughs) But um, Major's phrasing that they know no distinction between anyone very quickly becomes an issue. Okay. So a day after this speech, the Nationalist Party was planning a meeting at a Ukrainian hall somewhere in the North End, and it was going to get violent. Like, people knew in advance there was going to be a fight. And then Major closed the hall and had it guarded by the police. So he shut down a Nationalist meeting, and then Whitaker realized he could take that to his advantage and actually went to major directly and then also the mayor of winnipeg to try and get communist party meetings banned oh and the free press then noted his problem our major's problem specifically that he is to decide whether free speech should be unlimited or curtailed at the point where there is a strong possibility it will result in the cracking of heads interesting and uh for comparison here in toronto at this point in time they'd actually just given up and stopped closing meetings unless they were going to break a law Okay. And then they start doing the same here. Yeah. Huh. So basically what we're saying is you can meet and say whatever you want, even if it's like inflammatory or whatever. Yeah. Even if we know it's going to cause a fight, as long as it's not actually illegal. Exactly. Okay. That is the stance they take pretty early on. Right. There was also an interesting note because Whitaker does at one point go to city hall to talk to the mayor about banning a meeting. Mm-hmm. And there is a retort in the Winnipeg Tribune that if someone from the Communist Party had tried it, they probably would have been arrested. Yeah, so <laughs> I guess we've already decided that we don't like communists, but you know, we haven't decided about fascists yet. We'll let them hang around long enough to see. Yeah, no, but that does totally bring down the thing that he said about like, oh, we don't make any difference, right? Oh, absolutely, it does. And then um, shortly after this starts happening, the Canadian Nationalist paper starts railing against the press in Winnipeg, claiming that they were run by Jews who were deliberately ignoring him. 
And the thing is, the press was ignoring him. That's, I mean, that's one way to defeat fascism, I guess. (laughs) So Whitaker was trying to pay for ad space to advertise his meetings in the Tribune and the Free Press, and both papers were like, nope, we're not doing this. Oh, that's super interesting. But they did, like, report on the party, and they would say, like, oh, they had a meeting last night, and this happened, or, like, right. people could send in letters to, letters to the editor, where they would either, like, argue for or against fascism. Notably, mm-hmm. one guy from St. Jean writes to the Tribune three times, claiming fascism is a good idea. Oh, no. It's the same guy each time. Uh, stop. But for the most part, the Tribune's a little quieter on the issue. The free press is not quiet. Okay, so any they're, not, means. they're not actually ignoring him. They're just not printing his ads, which is different. Yeah. He's still getting like publicity, but it's not the publicity he wants. Right. So like with the free press specifically, uh, their editor, John W. Defoe, pretty early on also recognized fascism as a dangerous ideology. Like for a while, he was the only reporter in Canada or one of the only major ones talking about this. Oh wow. So like in the 19 like in 1933 he's already writing think pieces about like the fascist idea being dangerous and um one of his comments said that people should meditate on the implications of fascist government as revealed by Hitler's outburst and in a less startling way by the episode of the black shirt meeting in London. When a country submits to government by physical terrorism it suffers a total breakdown of civilized life. Hmm. It then continues to many it is simply not credible that people use free that people use to freedom will ever submit to fascist terrorism even if it does in return give economic security which up to this date it does nowhere in the world wow so pretty like prescient there oh very much so like we'll come back to defoe a bit later on but Throughout all of this, he is pretty active in criticizing what's going on globally. He's a little less active in, like, what's going on locally. Mm Because I think he is actually probably deliberately ignoring Whitaker. (laughs) And Whitaker, by contrast, was not ignoring what was going on in the normal papers. And he was frequently trying to take slams at them as often as he could. And then, like, within a year of founding his party, the the anti-Semitism grows incredibly blatant. Okay. To the point where actually young Jewish boys start trying to intercept the papers on street corners, trying huh. to stop them from going out. And oh, then I they get that. arrested and charged because... Ugh. Yeah. That sucks. It's not great, but it's interesting that so many people were, like, trying to stop this from happening. Yeah, and that's a very cool, like, real, like, grassroots way of being like, nope, I'm gonna stop fascism by literally taking these newspapers away. Yeah. I only find two or three accounts of it actually happening, but I'm sure it was more common than that. I don't think mm-hmm. like two or three people got that annoyed. Yeah. So, while Whitaker is sort of ramping up his awfulness, someone else in the Manitoba government is trying to sort of take a stance. This time it's Marcus Hyman, who was also an MLA with the Independent Labor League. Okay. And Hyman is really interesting because he was also involved in the Winnipeg general strike. Oh, okay. I don't know if I remember him. So he wasn't actually involved in the strike itself. He was a lawyer that defended the strike leaders after their arrest. Oh, okay. So he defends um, five of the strike leaders and actually manages to have five deportation orders reversed. Wow. So essentially, if someone doesn't know, some of the strike leaders were not from Canada originally, and 
uh, the Manitoba government was trying to have them deported. And Mm -hmm. Hyman managed to stop that, essentially. Wow. So, like, he's already a pretty prolific, like, lawyer and civil rights guy in the city at the time. Mm -hmm. And then, um, on March 20th in 1934, he introduces a bill for group libel. Okay. The Manitoba government. And our premier, John Bracken, actually supports it. Hmm. But probably not out of, like, the genuine goodness of his heart. Okay. There may have been some self-interest going on because... If Whitaker kept going, it was eventually going to weaken Bracken's power in politics. Oh, I see. So the bill is passed, and there is an amendment made for group libel added to the Manitoba Defamation Act. Mm-hmm. Huh. And, fun fact, this was the first in until 1970 only group libel law in Canada. Wow. So, and this was just a Manitoban law, right? Or It was just in Manitoba. Huh. So basically what this would allow is that any member of a religious or racial group could sue for an injunction against a publisher or an author. And if the case was successful, publication had to cease. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like, it's a pretty big, like legal change to make. And Mm -hmm. I think it's noteworthy also that it only happened in Manitoba and for about 40 years was the only law of its kind. Yeah, that's pretty crazy that, like, nowhere else did they recognize that that might be a thing that was, like, necessary. Or dangerous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, while this is happening, also, Hyman is pushing for a different amendment, but this time it's the Newspaper Act in Manitoba. Um, it did also pass, and it made a publisher's name mandatory on all publications. This was to prevent oh. someone from printing under a false name. Interesting. I feel like I could go either way on that one. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense at the time, considering a real concern was that if you stopped Whitaker, he could just keep publishing under a different name. And then I guess, like, it's hard to, like, it's hard to press charges or or sue someone for hate speech or for group libel, as they would have called it then, if there's no name on it. Yeah, and it's hard to hold the press accountable if you don't know who's writing it. Mm -hmm. But these laws being passed doesn't instantly stop Whitaker because someone does have to sue him first. Right. And that takes a little bit longer. So someone does eventually sue him? Yes. But like on the ground level, I think for a lot of everyday Winnipeggers, this would have looked like nothing was happening, right? Oh yeah. Bill negotiations and writing are a lot of behind closed doors stuff that people don't pay attention to. Mm Mm-hmm. So for a lot of people, it looked like nothing was happening. And then Whitaker is getting a larger and larger following and having more and more meetings. And this all reaches a boiling point in June of 1934. At this point, there are like pretty routine scuffles and fights. And Whitaker had scheduled a Nationalist Party meeting at Market Square on the evening of June 5th. Okay. So Market Square is where the public safety building used to be. And it was a public market in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. That was often used for like public gatherings and speeches. It was a pretty normal place to have a rally. Isn't this where Ginger Snooks got into a, a fight? Yeah, it was also for a while Ginger Snooks's personal battleground. <laughs> <laughs> so on the evening of June 5th, about 75 fully uniformed nationalists arrive. Oh, geez. So dressed fully like Nazis walking around Old Market Square. But they found a mob waiting for them. Oh, amazing. So the estimates at the time put the mob at around 400 people, roughly. The number changes depending on who was talking. But it's around four to 500. Okay. And this was a mix of people from Winnipeg's several anti-fascist leagues, the Communist Party, and just like general discontents in Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. 
And apparently they'd been on the scene for a while. Huh. Just like, waiting. How did how did they know that there was going to be a meeting? Well, probably through word of mouth. Okay. Right? Yeah. And also if you have people going into Nationalist Party meetings. Right. Either to disrupt or to oh, just yeah. like spy. Yeah. I think it's fair to say someone was probably trying to spy on the Nationalists at this point. That's a ton of people, though. So we've got 500 anti-fascists, about 700 fascists, or sorry, 75. No. <laughs> oh my god, Alex. <laughs> about 75 fascists. So. Yeah, it's a huge gap. It's a lot of people. They're outnumbered about one to four, roughly. Yeah. And according to the free press, people had been hanging out early, handing out both communist newsletters. And as the nationalists arrived, they started singing the international and then they attacked Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> so there were only three cops on duty at the time, somehow. That's not going to cut it. No, and they were not able to intervene. And it only lasted about 13 minutes, but it was, according to the Winnipeg Free Press, the largest riot since the Winnipeg general strike. Wow. Yeah. And this is how the uh, Tribune chose to describe it. Okay. Um. Market Square became a maelstrom of maddened men who used billies, clubs, and knives as weapons of defense and offense. A few minutes later, as the battle waxed more furious, flower pots taken from the market stalls went hurtling through the air. <laughs> People also ripped boards off of the market stalls to use as weapons. Oh my god. So, like, it was a violent fight. Yeah, that sounds intense. And that, like, that also sounds to me like people didn't maybe come intending to get into the fight that they got into. If they're like, no. yeah, grabbing boards off the surrounding market. Apparently the nationalists came with their own billy clubs. I mean, of course but, like, they did. Someone brought a knife. Oh, but no. they also may have just had a knife. Yeah. So ultimately 18 men were injured. Four were seriously injured and one was stabbed, but no one died. Okay. And then most of the injured men were members of the Nationalist Party, who the Free Press described as badly battered. <laughs> and eventually what broke it up is that 50 police officers arrived on the scene oh, and broke the mob up. So some of the Nationalists managed to escape down William Avenue into a truck that was waiting for them. The truck was actually meant to be their podium during the rally. Oh. <laughs> and just couldn't get there. And Whitaker notably wasn't present. He hadn't arrived yet. Oh. So he was, like, late to his meeting and then completely missed this fight. Oh, geez, that's embarrassing. Yeah. So um, nine men were arrested. And then some were actually taken to the hospital and then arrested <laughs> after being treated. So two of the men arrested were communists and the other seven were uh, nationalists or fascists. So what were they arrested for? I mean, taking part in a riot, okay. essentially. <laughs> I get That's not allowed? Okay. In this city, what? <laughs> so all of the men were remanded, and their bail was set at $1,000 per person. That's a lot. That's about $20,000 in okay. 2021 money. And it took about a couple of weeks for, their trials, or for the trial to take place on June 25th. All seven nationalists were acquitted. Only the communists were charged. Oh, come on. Now, I will say, <laughs> what happened at that event is that the Nationalists arrived at a meeting and the Communists beat them up on site. Okay, fair point. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they were wrong to do it. Yeah. Like, there's an interview with Bill Ross later on who was at the riot. And the way he phrased it was, these men were walking around, like, dressed like stormtroopers. 
right in jack boots and like someone had to tell them they couldn't keep doing this yeah and it was the only way they were probably going to be listened to mm-hmm. um a later city councilor joseph Zukin, was also at the riot he was just 22 at the time and yeah in 1980 he also said that the meeting was or that the riot was needed like there was no other way to stop these guys yeah and despite this, Whitaker tries to hold a second meeting a week later in the same spot. No, Whitaker. And no one turns up. <laughs> so oh, basically, they don't hold many public rallies past this point. Like they have mm. meetings in private still, but this stops all private meetings in their tracks or all public meetings because they're so scared of being beat up again. Huh. So it works is the thing. Okay, so apparently that is an effective way of defeating fascism. I mean, yeah. (laughs) But it doesn't actually stop the private meetings or the newspaper. You're right. That's still in circulation. And then in October of 1934, the Canadian Nationalist publishes an article that claims Jewish people uh, performed ritual blood sacrifice. And someone, again, takes notice. This time it's Captain William Werner Tobias, a Jewish Winnipeg lawyer, who finally filed an injunction against the paper. Okay. And so the injunction was against both uh, Whitaker and the publisher Neufeld, and it goes through. And a judge agrees to continue it until the case goes to trial in early 1935. Huh. So it blocks it for several months. And then after the trial, the injunction is made permanent, effectively banning Whitaker from publishing the paper officially anymore. Oh, wow. So Neufeld gets off of the charges by claiming his printing house did multiple papers and he didn't read it before he printed it. Okay. And then Whitaker gets fined $300. Right. And then for a couple of months, he goes underground until he reappears in 1935 with a hand-typed newsletter. (laughs) Which I have a picture of, I'm pretty sure, and it is, I would say, embarrassingly bad. Oh, man. It is like an 8 by 10 sheet of paper he just typed all of his angriest thoughts onto. (laughs) So I guess the injunction then seems to have actually worked, which, like, to me, that's more significant than the fine. Yeah. I mean, like, he still gets papers out off and on, but they're not quite the same, and some of them look like the one I just sent you. So there's no, like, graphic design that's happened here. This is just... No. This is just a letter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is basically just a letter to, like, the Tribune, but, like, I guess he was handing it out. I don't know. Yeah, so he wrote a bunch of these. Uh, and they're long. And there's multiple open letters to different news outlets in them. Weird. Every once in a while, there will be a cover with, like, a gross anti-Semitic cartoon on them, but... (laughs) Do you think Whitaker drew them himself? Probably not, because he did also have um, Arthur Hart Parker and Jack Cole still working with him. Mm -hmm. Um, So, this goes on for a couple of years, and then at some point during this, Whitaker actually gets ill, and Jack Cole takes on most of the duties of running the party. And this carries on until 1938, when Cole is the note-taker at a meeting between all of Canada's fascist parties. Oh, wow. Where they agree to amalgamate into Adrian Arcand's National Unity Party. Ugh, that's scary. Yeah, at this point, most of the party efforts move sort of to uh, Montreal and Toronto. Mm-hmm. But 
Um, a couple or later on in 1938, Archon tries to hold a rally in Toronto at Massey Hall with about 800 supporters. There were 10,000 um, counter protesters at the Maple Leaf Gardens. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this too, like by the time we're getting to 1938, like we're, you know, pretty close, not that far away from being actually at war with fascists. So I have to imagine yeah. it's a little easier then to make the point of like, no, these are not people we want. Yeah. It's a little dicier for politicians than like the general public, I would say, but mm -hmm. yeah. So the thing is, Whitaker dies in 1938. Oh, and okay. Yeah. So he misses all of the excitement later on. I mean, good. I mean, he would have been interned, but... Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, Whitaker wasn't the only fascist party leader in Winnipeg, but the other one was a little more, like, insidious and hard to track. Oh, interesting. So He wasn't just, like, on, an idiot on the street corner, is basically what you're saying. Yeah. So, earlier I mentioned that Whitaker had tried to go to Dr. Heinrich Sielheim with the German consulate for mm -hmm. support, and he was turned away. It wasn't because the consulate was opposed to fascism, but actually because they supported Hitler. <laughs> so there had been a Nazi presence in Winnipeg more or less since about 1933 when hmm. the Friends of New Germany tried to open a chapter here. Oh, weird. So officially, the German government said they weren't trying to recruit people in other countries. Okay. But unofficially, they very much were. Yeah. <laughs> they also would claim their anti-Semitism was for domestic use only. What? <laughs> What does that even mean? I don't know. It doesn't work. That's not how that works. No, you can't be like, no, we only hate Jews at home. Yeah, you can't do it in your house, only in mine. Yeah. So, um, the Friends of New Germany also goes by the name the German-American Bund. And okay. They're starting to organize a chapter in Winnipeg, and then a Jewish lawyer, Max Finkelstein, intercepts a letter sent to a guy in Winnipeg about it. And the letter reads, I appreciate you and your fellow compatriots' interest in Hitler and his ideas and ideals. So we do appreciate your willingness to cooperate with us in establishing Nazi groups and locals throughout Canada. Okay, so... So, so maybe actually, they lied. So maybe it's not domestic use only. Yeah. But Finkelstein actually manages to get the guy who sent the letter turned away at the border. Oh, wow. And then the uh, German-American Bund sort of falls apart. Hmm. And then in 1934, Dr. Heinrich, Dr. Heinrich Sielheim joins Hitler's party. Ugh. Officially. He becomes a National Socialist. Okay. And Sielheim was like a pretty popular diplomat in Winnipeg. He was like very charming and friendly. He was hmm. well-liked among the upper crust in Winnipeg. Yeah, I mean... Like, I would guess that if you want to continue being a diplomat, you kind of have to support the current party. Not that that's a great excuse to be a Nazi. Yeah, but he also could have been less of a Nazi. Yes. <laughs> so the thing is that, like, Sealheim was also from Germany, and he was also very much a social climber. So we saw a chance for advancement in the Third mm -hmm. Reich. So he signs up, and then he begins the work of promoting new German ideals. Right. And then publicly denies doing this. 
And the thing here is that there's this idea, especially in Nazi Germany, that all Germans are united by this thing called the Volk or the Folk. Okay. So no matter where you are, if you are a German, you are still a German, then you can come back home and be a Nazi, essentially, is what that means. Okay. <laughs> so probably part of the reason why Sealheim turned Whitaker away is that he was English and not German. Oh, interesting. And then they create a follow-up to the Friends of New Germany called the Deutscher Bund Canada in mm-hmm. 1934. And then they launched their own German new- newspaper called the Deutsche Zeitung for Canada, which is the German newspaper for Canada. Mm-hmm. And it's produced by Bernhard Bott. So Bott came to Canada after World War I. He was from Bavaria. He lived in Regina for a while. And then in 1934, he went to Germany to see the Nuremberg rallies. Ugh. And then came back converted. Oh, no. So he comes back a pretty diehard national socialist. And the Deutsche Zeitung is very blatant German propaganda. Mm. But it's written in German. Oh, Okay. So it like, it detects the notice of some people. Right. But what they're trying to do is essentially build a group of followers and defenders of Nazi Germany and Canada Mm. among Canadian German immigrants. Right. It's funny because I feel like when, like, when say Japanese immigrants were like interned during World War II, like that's the kind of thing they were afraid of that there were like, you know, spies and, like, efforts to get people on side. But, like, that is actually happening with Nazis. Very genuinely throughout the decade. Also, guess who's publishing the Deutsche Zeitung paper? Is it the same guy again? It's the same guy! Hermann Neufeld's back! (laughs) No, stop! (laughs) He's still not reading the papers! (laughs) Nope, apparently not. And, um... He just, like, prints them with his eyes closed. (laughs) Yeah, he maybe he's just like illiterate and knows how to put the letters in place, but that's about it. <laughs> there's no other way to justify this. It's no. very strange. But there's not a whole lot of translated versions of the Deutsche Zeitung available to read, but one of the quotes I did find was, only as a German are you a complete human being, therefore as a German you will stay. Weird. So, yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess German immigrants here could be reading that, but that's not going to get you a ton of, like, converts. No, I mean, there were a decent amount of German immigrants to Winnipeg and across Canada. I don't think they were genuinely trying to, like, overthrow Canada right away. It was just to build a following. Right. Because the Deutsche Zeitung would also start publishing one or two sheets of paper in English. Okay. Okay. So the theory was that if there's a German farmer with an English neighbor, he can read the paper and then go show his neighbor. Oh, okay. So you create people who are willing to convert others. hmm And then also the paper starts to blame Jewish people for everything wrong with society again. Of course. And then the thing is, it's, again, in German, like no one sort of in the regular press is regularly reading this. Yeah. So it's escaping the notice of people who might have otherwise been worried about it. Mm. And here's the real kicker of all of this. Heinrich Sielheim is the primary shareholder in the paper. Oh. I feel like if you're like a diplomat, you should not be involved in that kind of thing. That was a secret at the time. That came out much later. Weird. I mean, like, obviously there are much bigger issues, like, in the form of, like, being a Nazi to begin with. But 
the thing is, he's denying that he's not like actively working yeah. to spread Nazism, but then he's actually funding a paper who gets a lot of their articles straight from the press office in Munich. Right. There's also a group called the Canadian Society for German Culture. They are like, they work often with like the Deutschbund and they claim to be a non-political group. And it's mostly like a group to promote German culture in Winnipeg because there are a lot of German immigrants who might like miss home. Right. Yeah. In a very real way. But over the course of the 1930s, the Bund is overtaken by people who run the Nazi party. Mm. And they also have to take over a Deutschtag or German Day, which is a big cultural event in Winnipeg that takes place at River Park. Oh, that's so bad to have your cultural event taken over by Nazis. Yeah. That's pretty much the worst thing that could happen to your, like, cultural event. I know. And, like, it sort of skews the idea of who might be supporting it or not, because some people might just be turning up for the picnic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Because you have people that want to, like, go and talk to their friends and probably, Mm -hmm. like, have German food and sing German songs. And this is the one outlet a year you really get to do that. Right. And then there are just Nazis there also, Mm -hmm. is the thing. So That's we didn't actually really know- a pretty good, like, recruiting mechanism, too, to be like, oh, you're probably, like, feeling nostalgic for, like, yeah. home. This is what's going on at home right now. Exactly. So in 1936, there's a German Day event at River Park, and about 8,000 people are in attendance. Wow. And about half of them were witnessed doing a synchronized Nazi salute. Oh, no. And then during a speech given, Sielheim attacks the press, and then specifically attacks the Tribune for defaming Germany because apparently the Tribune had recently called Hitler neurotic and they took offense to this. Oh, yeah. And then uh, Bernhard Bott was the MC of the event. Okay. And then it seems like attacking the press becomes sort of an annual tradition at uh, German cultural days in Winnipeg. Weird. For the rest of the decade. But that's what fascism is. Yeah. You attack the legitimate press. Mm-hmm. It happens in Germany, and there are reports of it happening there, and they're trying to sort of do the same thing in a less effective way here. Right. Because they do not have the same power over anything in Winnipeg. The free press is always going to be bigger than them. Yeah. Now, throughout all of this, there are still, like, anti-fascist leagues who are trying to fight against them, mostly through, like, rallies and events. Some of their publications are uh, in Yiddish and Hebrew, and then there's some in English. And most of the ones I found were from 1938, which is when things were getting progressively worse in Germany. And they're actually writing to Christian churches asking to form alliances against fascism. Huh. Basically trying to find, like, partners to team up against this. They now have an office at 240 Manitoba Avenue. And then they hold a big event, um with a Manitoba professor, William Frederick Osborne, and it's hosted by John Queen. Okay. At this point, it's 1938. John Queen is now the mayor of Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. So it's a, like, city-sanctioned event, effectively, about the dangers of fascism. Huh. Okay. I mean, good for John Queen. I mean, he was always, I would say, pretty dedicated to his politics. Yes. (laughs) And then um, there's uh, J.A. Cherniak, who goes to an anti-racist convention in Paris in 1937 and gives a speech about how anti-Semitism is a global problem Hmm. and then runs anti-fascist league meetings in Winnipeg quite generally. 
And there are other anti-fascist groups in Canada that are actually taking on some more covert missions, like actually infiltrating Adrian Arcon's party and listing its members. Wow. The very cool thing is at the Jewish Heritage Center, they have those letters. I gotta read. Oh, that's so cool. A guy's spy correspondence, essentially. Oh, man. See, and I'm like, I'm so much more impressed by that, like, long-term work than, like, you know, like, the people who showed up to disrupt the meetings. Like, that's great. But it's it's so much (laughs) dedication, right, to be like, okay, I'm going to be, like, secretly infiltrating this thing or whatever. I have to pretend to be as bad as them to get in. Yeah. Essentially. And then there's also one guy in Winnipeg, uh, Paul Osborne, who decides it's his life calling to fight Nazi Germany, essentially. Huh. And he sets up a storefront in Winnipeg with, like, reports and articles about what's going on overseas in Germany. And then the storefront kept getting vandalized. Oh. And then the Anti-Fascist League starts um, holding rallies at the Civic Auditorium. They start um, actually publicly condemning different governments for their action or inaction. So, like, there's a pogrom in Poland that kills 75 Jews, and they publicly ask for, like, an explanation and an apology for that. They begin to also push for a boycott of German-made goods. So there's not, like, as much rioting and disrupting, but more of, like, a concentrated effort to, like, influence politics and politicians. Yeah. So... The most vocal person in Winnipeg was probably still John Defoe, who okay. was still using the free press to criticize Germany whenever he could. Mm-hmm. Probably the reason he is the most vocal is that he has a massive paper at his disposal of course, that goes out every day but Sundays. Mm-hmm. He's the editor, so if he wants to write a one-page sheet and put it in, he has that power. Right. So, like, presumably there are people who are more vocal but didn't write it down. Yeah. But we have written evidence of Defoe doing this. Mm-hmm. And what is maybe the most interesting is that pretty early on in the 1930s, Defoe was saying we should be preparing for war. Wow. No one else in Canada was trying to do that because everyone was so desperate to avoid a war again. Right. Like, you have to remember, this is not that long after World War One, which was like a traumatic societal event. No one wants oh, a yeah. repeat of that. Which means that people are pretty keen to sort of appease Hitler whenever they get the chance because they don't want a war to start. Mm -hmm. So you have these very weird, like, pro-Hitler-ish articles in some outlets. Politicians are being very nice to him. Interesting. Our prime minister described him as having soft skin and a boyish face. What? (laughs) Okay. It's very bizarre. Yeah. And, like, even as reports start to come out about things getting bad in Germany, no one really wants to poke that bear. Right. And then in 1937, uh, Sealheim actually leaves Manitoba. He takes a promotion and goes to Japan. Okay. And he's replaced by Wilhelm Rhoda, who was worse. Oh, no. So Rhoda was more of a bully, and he was a lot more outspoken about what his party wanted to do. And there are some oral histories that claim Rhoda would drive around town in a limousine with a swastika flag. Oh, jeez. And then dressed like a Gestapo agent in a black leather jacket. Like, I guess at the time, that was the German flag, right? But... Yeah. Yeah. It's not a nice image to think about that in No, it's hometown. not. And then the Bund Society starts playing propaganda films in Winnipeg theaters. Hmm. And Rhoda comes to be the guest speaker. He's not, like, the hottest thing. The documentary on the subject claims he wasn't very attractive and he wasn't very fun. <laughs> But, like, they weren't relying on him to draw a crowd anymore, because they didn't really 
care so much about Winnipeg by 1937. Right. But Rhoda maybe cared a bit more because he could see that undercurrent of anti-Semitism in Winnipeg and thought he mm-hmm. could exploit that. Because there's the banning of people on the beaches and then even like higher crust societies like the Manitoba Club wouldn't allow Jewish members. Yeah. And then Rhoda apparently didn't necessarily always want to be in Winnipeg. He did once write a letter complaining that he couldn't take part in German expansion. <laughs> and then added, and maybe one of the worst things I read during this, outside of the actual propaganda, we can only hope as many Jews as possible are deported here so we may take our vengeance against the bad attitude against Germans. Oh. Weird. <laughs> it's not great. No. It's gross. That's bad. So then, um, overseas, in 1938, in September, the Germans take control of Czechoslovakia, a move that is officially sanctioned by both the French and the British government. And Defoe writes an article not long after called, What Are They Cheering For? And he really <laughs> outlines the issue with what's going on. I'm just going to read the opening and the conclusion because the middle bit is long 1930s political stuff. It's not very <laughs> exciting. Okay. So it reads... While the cheers are proceeding over the success which is attending the project of dismembering a state by process of bloodless aggression, some facts might be set out for information of people who would like to know what the cheering is about and who ought to be taking part in it. The doctrine that Germany can intervene for racial reasons for the protection of Germans on such grounds as she thinks proper in any country in the world, which she is in a position to coerce, and without regard to any engagement she has made guarantees or has given to has not only now been asserted, but made good. It has been approved, sanctioned, certified, and validated by the governments of Great Britain and France who have undertaken in this respect to speak for the democracies of the world. This is the situation, and those who think that it is right will cheer for it. Hmm. Like, by this point, Defoe is not holding back anymore. Yeah. He barely was earlier, but this is very critical of that, like, choice. Yeah, the choice to appease Hitler and to allow that to happen. Well, I mean, it's to annex the country, essentially. Yeah, right? yeah. It's always, I don't know, it's always kind of comforting in a way to hear people, like, in the past being like, no, this, like, this is bad. Yeah, it's nice to know that people saw it then, too. Yeah. <laughs> even if it didn't do too much. So, also in 1938, for some reason, Rhoda tries to pick a fight with the Catholic Church. Okay. Essentially what happens is the free press prints an article that they get from the Associated Press claiming the Germans are not celebrating Christmas, they're celebrating Yule. Okay. And then the Archbishop in St. Boniface uses a quote for that in his Christmas Eve sermon. Rhoda finds out and then writes the Archbishop an angry letter about how he should have checked with the German consul before (laughs) spreading misinformation. And there's like a really angry back and forth. And then the Archbishop gives all of the letters to the free press who just publishes them in full. Oh, man. It is the dumbest feud. None of it is necessary. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So, to be clear, like, this is, what's the year now? 1938. Right. So, this is on, like, (laughs) right before a massive war is about to start and the Holocaust is about to start. And they're, like, having an argument about whether or not Germans celebrate Christmas. Yeah. And notably, this is in November. It's the same month Kristallnacht happens in Germany, which is a massive program that kills 91 to hundreds of people, maybe, depending on right. the numbers you count. And it also arrests 30,000 Jewish men. Like, there is there are bigger things going on globally than celebrating Yule. Yeah. Now, it's around this time that the Tribune starts to put the pieces together about 
Nazi um, connections to Winnipeg papers and begins to start sharing the names of stakeholders, including Steelheim. Oh, interesting. So they find this out in 1938. It's also when they realize that Neufeld is still printing Nazi papers. <laughs> and he tries the same excuse. No. He says he wasn't reading them. But, okay, but like, did you not figure out last time that you got to read it? Yeah, it's, I don't know. Nothing really happens to him. Yeah. But um, Bernhard Bott, the writer of the paper, actually gets placed under police supervision because he keeps receiving death threats by this point. Oh, wow. Like, by late, teen, late 1938, I think people realized things were getting worse and it was going to be harder to stop a war from happening. Right. So you see a bit more criticism even in, like, the Winnipeg Tribune, which had been a little quieter until this point. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, on January 30th, 1939, there's a massive celebration in Winnipeg to celebrate Hitler's rise to power in 1933. Oh, weird. So there's 500 people in attendance. They sing the German national anthem and they all see Kale. And um, it's mostly in German. So when they invite the press, they give them translations of what's being said. Oh. Otherwise, it's all in German. Right. So what Rhoda says, because he's the main speaker at the event is that the happy and radiant face that greater Germany turns to the world is built of peaceful features. Hmm. This is a government that not too long ago, like, or is currently arresting and killing people. Yeah. I'm going to send you a picture of the rally also, just because it's upsetting and I want you to also see it. So big old, big old Nazi signs, big old swastikas here. And then a ton of people, yeah, doing the Nazi salute. Yeah, no, super, super upsetting picture. For some reason, it's really, it's like extra upsetting to me to see women in this crowd. And I don't quite know why. Women were absolutely a part of this. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also just weird to see it like happening in your hometown. Yes. That's always really hard to like grapple with. Yeah. So this is really early in 1939. War is basically on the horizon at this point. Rhoda leaves not long after to actually go back to Germany to actually serve the SS properly. Huh. And then a guy named Otto Jansen takes over for him. I don't know too much about Otto Jansen. But so as Neufeld stops printing the paper because no one believed his lie about not reading it, the Deutsche Zeitung had to set up their own printing shop in 1939, and then it didn't last all that long. Okay. Because they set their own, their own up in, like, the winter of 1939, and then they published their last issue on August 30th, 1939. Hmm. Okay. And then, two weeks later, Otto Jansen moves to America. Oh, okay. Do so. you know what happens between August 30th and September 14th? Uh-oh, what happens? Hitler invades Poland. Right, okay. Hitler invades Poland on September 1st. And through a series of, like, military treaties and alliances, World War II begins, and Canada is at war within a matter of days. Right. So, somewhat suspiciously, the paper stops, and then Otto Jansen flees. Hmm. And not long after this, the Canadian government quickly flags fascist parties as a threat to national security. Okay. And they actually round up and arrest about 850 fascists. Oh, wow. Including Adrian Arcand and Bernhard Bott. Whitaker's assistant, Jack Cole, just 
vanishes. We do not know what happened to him. Hmm. Weird. So they're placed in internment camps for the duration of the war and then released later. Right. Arcand actually continues uh, the National Unity Party until his death in the 60s. Ugh. And he starts calling himself the Fuhrer of Canada. Gross. Yeah. Don't like that guy. But also, some communists are also arrested in turn because they are also threats to national security early on. Right. Because early in the war, Russia signs a non-aggression pact with Germany. Mm-hmm. So the communists could also still be on sort of the wrong side here. Yeah. Yeah. But Bad move. Bad move, Stalin. Oh, great. So some, actually, communists in Manitoba are chosen to go underground to avoid arrest. Right. This includes Bill Ross, who's come up a few times. Hmm. Bill Ross was a founding member of the Young Communist League, so, like, he was a pretty active one in Winnipeg. Right. So he's underground from about 1939 until 1942. Huh. And then, basically, once Russia starts fighting Germany, most communists agree to support the war effort. Right. Is like the shift that happens there. Yeah. But then like members of the anti-fascist leagues in Winnipeg are mostly supporting the war effort in a variety of ways. This also includes putting on comedic skits. So <laughs> Joseph Zukin organized a couple of comedic skits during the war. And then the war ends. And I think with all that happened, people are pretty keen to forget about it. Right. Like that's a long five years yeah. They've learned a lot of horrifying things. Like, it wasn't a secret that Jewish people were being murdered in Germany, but I don't think the extent of it was fully realized until the war was over and people found yeah. the concentration camps. Yeah, definitely. So, like, you've learned a lot, and I think it would be hard to try and grapple with that happening overseas and that's being so close to happening here. Yeah. So people try to forget about it, mm-hmm. and they don't talk about it. But, like, not everyone totally forgets. So, in 1996, on June 5th, there was a rally held in Market Square, which at the time was the public safety building. There were about 100 people present. Some of them were part of the group United Against Racism. And they actually had three people involved in the original riot. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, including uh, Fred Narvey, who was a pretty prominent, like, organizer of anti-fascist leagues at the time. Huh. Yeah. That's cool. So, like, we, should, we should do that again. I think so. I mean, I don't think anyone knows about the event. No, I guess not. <laughs> also, we can't organize it now, but maybe one day. Maybe one day. So, like, the end here is that this hasn't totally ended, obviously, right? right? Like, yeah. there are still issues with nationalists and neo-Nazis and fascists in Canada today. Yeah. As sad as that is. But if you do want to do something about it, you can consider giving money to the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. They um, work to expose hate groups and promote the movements and groups, and they try and use every legal ethical tool at their disposal to stop them when they can. They work with the Southern Poverty Law Center, and they also work with de-radicalization experts. Cool. And just to prove I put my money where my mouth is, I did donate $50 before we started recording. Nice. Good for you. (laughs) I mean, it's weird to promote a charity and not actually also support them. Yeah. And I have the income to do it, so I may as well. Nice. But the thing is, we can look at it in kind of like a negative, oh, shucks, nothing has changed way. Mm -hmm. Which I'm sure some people are going to. But I think there is something to be kind of proud of here, and it's that Winnipeg has this really long tradition of anti-fascism and anti-racism. Yeah, like it sounds like almost like 
the minute that fascists show up here, anti-fascists, anti-fascists showed up as well. Oh, almost immediately. And they did all of the hard work of like trying to change policies and disrupt meetings. Yeah. And like, like, even, even more than like covert operations, like what's even harder work is like trying to like pass bills in the legislature. Or like correct disinformation. There are newsletters just trying to correct lies that like the Nazi party is spreading. Oh man. That is hard, thankless work. Oh yeah. (laughs) So it's really cool that there are people like that in Winnipeg who did all of that so early on. Yeah. And like, it's really easy, I think, for us now, hopefully to be like, hey, obviously, that's a terrible ideology. But yeah, to be able to recognize in like the early 1930s that this was something that was dangerous. So I would also like to thank um, the Jewish Heritage Center for Western Canada with their help with this episode. They sent me so many articles and found me so (laughs) many files. I really appreciate it. They're a fantastic archive in the city. If you ever need them, they're very helpful. And thank you for listening. If you want to see pictures of any of the people involved, I'm not going to be posting the anti-Semitic propaganda for obvious reasons. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) But there will be pictures of stuff like the rallies and the people involved. You can check that out at our website at onegreathistory.wordpress.com. We're on Instagram and Facebook at One Great History, and we're on Twitter at the number one great history. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 